The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city of Samaria and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me that, to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. God, we thank you for your word, the story of your grace. With great power comes what? Great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. It's a quote from a French philosopher, Voltaire, and it's a quote that made its way into the Spider-Man movies as well. It's funny, when you go on the internet, I was like, no, that was not sourced by Spider-Man. Like, that's when I look. I'm like, no, 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 I know it's not Spider-Man. So I had to do some digging. Voltaire. Voltaire is the guy who said that. With great power comes great responsibility. And it means that if someone is given access to a certain amount of power, the amount of how that power is carefully used needs to be equivalent. Power. What is power? Power is the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or influence the course of events in a situation. That's what power is. And everyone has been given a degree of power, no matter the age in a situation. A newborn baby learns that their cry has power to influence the behavior of their parents, right? A six-year-old's tantrum has power to influence the behavior of a parent, especially when every customer at Aldi is watching, right? A 
powerful. A 16-year-old sitting behind the wheel of a car and leaving an unsupervised drinking party has power. But with great power, friends, in a broken, a sinful, not-the-way-it's-supposed-to-be world comes great irresponsibility, abuses of power. This week, a 28-year-old held great power in her hand, two assault rifles and a pistol, as she entered an elementary school and opened fire. Great power meets great irresponsibility. This week, a former president is indicted on business fraud charges. And both Republican and Democrats claim that what's going on behind the scenes are abuses of power, whether it's the Justice Department or the man himself. Abuses of power. And it's not just out there. It's in the church. Celebrity pastor after celebrity pastor blanket the headlines over using his position or his pulpit as a cover for treating the least of these like a piece of meat. Abuse of power. Women in the church using their power in words and relationships and prayer requests to tell half-truth stories, to raise suspicions against those they don't prefer. Power and the abuse of it can light fires whose heat and whose flames can be felt and seen around the world. The book of Acts is a book about power. A powerful fire that is spreading across the world. Jesus gave promise to this wildfire spread when he said in Acts 1-8 this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But what was necessary in order for that wildfire to spread, for that promise to be realized, what was necessary was power. He says, right before saying that, you will receive power. How and when will we receive power, they asked. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit, friends, if you think about the Trinity and their different roles and relationship to one another, the Holy Spirit is like the nuclear power plant of the Trinity. The one whose power gave you the breath that you are breathing right now. That came from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one whose power gave Jesus' crucified, dead body an eternal rebreathing. That was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's power is the one who inflames the church to preach the good news of death defeated, of sin surrendered, and of a kingdom come. That's the Holy Spirit's power doing that work. With this great power... The Holy Spirit spreading his flame of a king and a kingdom to the ends of the earth through the church. With that power, friends, comes great responsibility from the church. And so there are three questions I want this passage to help us answer as we consider the Spirit's fire in the church and how we use it responsibly. First, what does the Holy Spirit's fire do specifically? 
Second, what are some of the abuses of this power we are called to confront as a church? And finally, what are our responsibilities in receiving and having this power within us? Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what seems to be the hardest member of the Trinity to understand, the Holy Spirit. Give us eyes, Spirit, to see. Give us ears, Spirit, to understand. Amen. First question, what is the Holy Spirit's fire for? What is the Holy Spirit all about? Well, friends, I want to ask the question, what does actual fire do? That might help us. So let's think about fire. Fire does one thing. It illuminates things so we can see. It gives us light. Those lights right there are actually fire. They help us to see things. That's first what the Spirit does. Second, the Spirit warms and protects us like fire does so that we can live. And thirdly, what fire does and what the Holy Spirit's fire does is refine us, purify us, change us. Fire is able to take material from one form to another. That's what fire does. So look with me throughout this passage to see the ways in which the Holy Spirit's fire is doing all of this in a place like Samaria. The Spirit's fire first illuminates. It shines light. And what is it shining light on in Acts chapter 8? It is shining a light on sin. It is shining a light on a Savior. It's shining a light on salvation. Look what's happening with Philip's preaching in verse 12. He's preaching good news. And what makes good news for Samaritans? If you know the story and the history of Samaritans, they are considered, like in the Harry Potter books, mudbloods. They are half-breeds. They are, to the Jew, considered unclean. And they have messed with worship, and they've messed with the theology of God, that they should be kind of set apart. Jews wouldn't even cross through Samaria because it was such a disgusting place to go. They are hated people by the Jews, considered unclean and dirty. And if that were your reality, if that's were how you were considered by people, what would you do with that? You'd come up with some cleanup efforts, right? Samaritans were superstitious people trying desperately to find ways and to reclaim their status or their cleanliness as a people of God. So what does the Spirit light up in them? The Spirit shows them the truth of their uncleanness, the truth of their sin, and the truth of their Savior. The Holy Spirit begins to light a fire in their minds and in their hearts to see that they can give up their cleanup efforts to be better than they are. And instead, just come to Jesus to be your only cleanup agent. As the fire shows them that sin and shows them that Savior, where does the passage take them? Where do we see them going once they see the good news that their sin is there, but they have a Savior from their sins? They go for a swim. They get baptized. They get cleansed. The Spirit's not only revealing their sin in a Savior, He's also burning in them the protection and the warmth of Christ. They go to wash themselves in the cleansing that Jesus provides. That baptism is a symbol and an entrance into the visible church, into the people of God, made clean by Jesus. That's where they're all going. My wife dated a pig farmer when she was in high school. And I had a client in counseling in Illinois who was a pig farmer. And I remember, 
If you've ever known pig farmers or been to a pig farm, how putrid that odor is. After our sessions, he would leave our sessions and everyone in the counseling office would be like, oh, you saw so-and-so today. I'm like, I did. And my office is horrible. And I remember how much, no matter how much I sprayed my office down, I couldn't get rid of that odor. That's how the Samaritans were viewed. But look at what's happening as this powerful fire of the Spirit burns. They're washing off the smell. They're washing off the stain. The curse of sin is taken off them. What a beautiful picture. These people. But the Spirit doesn't stop burning there. The Spirit continues to refine and change and purify us from who we were to who Christ is. Dying to our old self and becoming new again in Christ. From a being a pig farmer to being a royal prince. This is the purpose of the signs that you see in verse 13. To show them what the kingdom of God promises to do. A complete overhaul. A complete transformation of the way things are to the way things will be. That's what's happening to a Samaritan. What else is being overhauled and transformed here in this passage? The makeup of the church, friends. So far in Acts, the Spirit's fire has burned among a Jewish audience. The purest people of God. The Old Testament people who could trace their lineage back to Abraham. So when the apostles hear that the gospel is being received and trusted in by Samaritans, there is this scratching of the head. How can this be? I, I want you to think today, maybe your equivalent is, think today, who might be your most unlikely convert to Christianity? Who in your life, or who population-wise, would you consider to be the most unlikely convert to Christianity? Jesus, in John 4, first gave away his identity as Savior and as Messiah to whom? His first revealing of who he was was to who? A Samaritan and a woman. Two classes of people considered least and lesser. And Jesus promised the gift of God to her. Could this be that this gift of God is not just for her, but for the entire pig farming population. This is why John and Peter, in verse 14, are sent down to Samaria. They need to be witnesses to Jesus' promises coming true as men and women are believing in the word of God and trusting in the Spirit's fiery things, that Jesus is the one who can cleanse them. Peter and John had to see for themselves, this is going beyond the Jewish population. So they pray, Peter and John do in verse 15, that the Spirit's fire, which is already at work in leading these people to faith, to send down gifts to help strengthen this little church plant in Samaria. We'll talk in just a moment about why is there a delay of the Spirit. 
But Peter and John pray for the Spirit to bring the gifts of preaching in various tongues, or prophecy encouraging the people, or faith, or prayer, or healing to this population, so that the kingdom fire might continue to spread its light and its protection and its transformation throughout the region of Samaria. Spirit's fire is changing these Samaritan individuals and it's also changing the church and the people of God to include them. Pig farmers are made princes. Prostitutes are made princesses. Pornographers become priests. Personality disordered people become prophets. This is an institution, the church, that's made up the Spirit's fire in shining a light on sin, in showing us a love of a Savior, in protecting us in his deep dive into death and coming out of the waters alive, and changing us from who we thought we would always be to something completely new. This is the Spirit's fire on fire in the hearts of people and in the heart of the church. That's what's going on here in Samaria. And that's what's going on here at All Saints. But this passage should also give us warning. That the Spirit's fire is not to be played with or mishandled. The first question is, what is the Spirit's fire for? The second question is, what are some of the abuses of this power we as a church are called to confront? There's three main abuses that this passage highlights. First, it's playing with foreign fire. Second, it's quenching that Spirit's fire. And thirdly, it's power grabbing the Spirit's fire. First, see in verses 9 to 11 what playing with foreign fire looks like. It starts with, there was a, but there was a man named Simon in Samaria. Simon, he's been on Samaria's Got Talent multiple times. And for many years, working his magic. And he loves the attention. In fact, he loves marketing himself as great as all that. He's not a humble guy. He loves getting the praise and the attention of his magic. But this magic is not like the sleight of hand stuff that you'd see today. No. This is foreign fire that Simon is playing with. Simon is involved in the dark arts of asking demons and evil powers of the world to do things to impress and amaze and even scare the people a little bit. Why? For his own gain, for his own reputation, for his own pocketbook. To the point that people are mistaking the power at work in him as the power of God himself. So how do you recognize this abuse today? How do you recognize foreign fires and what they look like today? Well, what I would say is let the Spirit shine a light on them and trust your gut. Fires. Foreign fires, practices, even worship practices, friends, that shine more light on people and their powerful acts and less light on Christ and his work of redemption, those are probably foreign fires. Anything that's grabbing media attention or even the church at large's attention needs to be sniffed. It's like the difference between burning wood, oh, it's such a good smell, and burning plastic, oh, that's a horrible smell. There's a strange smell to man-made stuff like plastic burning as I recently accidentally put a Pyrex lid on top of our stovetop. Ugh, smelled so bad. Use your sniffer to recognize these foreign fires. One question you might ask is, does the 
does this fire point to the Father and the Son? Which is always the Spirit's goal. That's always the Spirit's goal. Look to the Father and look to the Son in this. Or does it point to another man or another woman? Or even point you just to look at the phenomenon of what's happening? Remarkable healings. Or faith-based fad diets. Or lifestyle changes that promote your best life now. And discourage you going down the road of sacrifice or service or selflessness. You know what? That's probably the devil's M.O. You can smell foreign fires because they're about self-glory. That anyone but God is seen as great. They also look like self-will. My will be done. I have to do this. Not God doing it in me. And then self-preservation. It's only at the cost of others. I don't have to, I don't have, it won't cost me a thing to be a part of this. That's why you can smell foreign fires. The next abuse that you can see possibly happening, but not, thankfully not happening in this passage, is quenching the Spirit's power. Quenching the Spirit happens, as my friend puts it, when we become too skeptical of things that the Holy Spirit is not scared of. Let me explain. The apostles could have heard what was happening in Samaria and quickly discount, discounted that as there's no way. There is no way God is at work in Samaria. Not a chance. God wouldn't redeem Samaritans. They didn't read Ezekiel. But they didn't do that. Instead, Peter and John discerned it through prayer, verse 15 says. And they laid hands upon these unclean people. Touching what any Jew would consider to be untouchable. And in verse 25, friends, after giving testimony that God is at work in Samaria, they start preaching to all of the towns in Samaria on their way back to Jerusalem instead of being skeptics that, you know what's happening in Samaria, that's just a little fluky thing. No. No. They celebrated the Spirit's power by fanning the flames of the Spirit in all of the region of Judea. Friends, we have become too skeptical of people. When a virgin heard she was pregnant, what was her faithful, unquenchable response? Nothing is impossible for God. When the Spirit prompts you in an elevator or in a sauna to ask the person next to you where they're putting their hope, don't quench the Spirit by downplaying the prompt with, uh, I don't want to make them comfortable. I don't want to make myself uncomfortable. Don't be a skeptic. Listen to that voice and respond to it. Speak when he asks you to speak. Philip the evangelist is in Samaria because he was not a great candidate in Jerusalem. And he was not a likely candidate to change Samaria. He was downgraded, Philip was, to serving tables earlier in Acts. Because he was a Hellenist Jew. He was not considered a pure, purebred. He's also considered a lower class citizen. So his experience of being sort of outed and offed by people is actually what makes him credible in Samaria. And it was him God used to reach a whole new lot of people. Don't quench the spirit by believing that sharing the good news of Jesus is reserved for a pastor or for ministry leaders or for missionaries. Friends, the spirit is calling you. You. The last abuse that this chapter highlights for us 
is power grabbing the Spirit's fire. And you see this in verses 18 to 24. As Simon, witnessing the apostles laying hands on the Samaritan converts, he asks that he too be given the power, not the Spirit, but the power or authority to do what they did. He doesn't ask for the Spirit. He asks for the power to hand out the Spirit. And he's attempting to pay off Peter and pay off God to have this power. And power grabs are not concerned about the Spirit's role in leading people to Christ. Power grabs are concerned about making much of the kingdom of self. And this is in all of us, visible and invisible church. It's kind of funny as I was reading about this, the adjective for what happened in this event over the course of centuries after it became termed as simony. When power positions like pope or priest started to become up for sale, where you could buy a position. Simony. That was considered simony. Abuses in the church like this, like Simon demonstrates, were part of what led to the Reformation. God is not in the business of being bought. The gift of grace, it's not for sale. Playing with the Spirit's fire will get you burned. Peter's response in verse 20 literally tells us this. He says to Simon this, to hell with you and your money. That's what he literally says. To hell with you and your money. And that's not profanity. He literally means that. To hell with that. Simon's heart was not right before God because he saw the kingdom of God and the Spirit's fire behind it as a ladder to climb, as a profit center, as a power play. And friends, the kingdom of God and the Spirit's fire behind it is not a ladder up. It steps down. It involves service and sacrifice and suffering. People might ask the question, wait a minute, it looks like Simon was a believer. He wasn't a believer. And the way in which you can see that is in his response to Peter's cry out to say, repent. What does he say? He says, pray to the Lord for me that this does not happen to me. What does that sound like? Actually, it sounds like Pharaoh from Exodus, he said the exact same thing to Moses. Pray to the Lord for me. I don't want to pray, but you take care of it for me. And then he also says that this doesn't happen to me. What's that all about? Self-preservation. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want that to happen to me. There's no repentance for his sin. Actually, he was going to be known later as the father of a heresy, Gnosticism, Simon was. So we have to be very careful to pay attention that Satan is starting to try to make his way into the church for people who are using the church as their power position, as their power play. One of the theological abuses of power grabbing, which is the result, or actually uses this passage, has to do with what you see as the delay of the Spirit's coming. This might confuse us when we read this. Wait, I thought the Spirit comes when there's belief, when there's faith. Yes, true. Well, why is this delay here? In the Catholic Church, these verses have become a power grab to use ceremony as the mark of a spirit. Where in the Catholic Church, it's only when a child is confirmed into faith through a ceremony that the spirit will come upon them. They're baptized, and then it's in that confirmation ceremony they receive the spirit. 
In the Pentecostal church, these verses have become this two-stage process between faith and then receiving a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, where only those elite who have been given the gift of tongues are maybe considered saved. I want to say to both of those things, to hell, to hell with those power grabs. The Spirit will not be contained to our predictable God boxes. Instead, see in this passage the Spirit's delay on the Samaritan as an anomaly. It is a waiting by God until the apostles in Jerusalem could witness and verify that the church was not only going to be made up of Jews, but it was going to be made up of mud-blood Samaritans and heathen Gentiles and you and me. The gifts that they were receiving in Samaria, the Holy Spirit was given for the growth of the church beyond Jerusalem. And Peter and John needed to see that and understand that. Because here was probably one of the first ordination services in which Samaritan preachers were put behind pulpits. Where Samaritan men and women were now prophesying and praying in Jesus' name, even in foreign language. Not just so the church could grow, but so that the name of Jesus could be transported around the world. So last question quickly, what is our response and responsibility in receiving this power and this fire? It's this, prayerfully and carefully fan into flame the gift of God that's been given to you, church. Some of you are gift of God teachers. Some of you are gift of God prayer warriors. Some of you are gift of God prophets and counselors. Some of you are gift of God good news deliverers. Some of you are gift of God servants and table setters. Receive these gifts with humility and use these gifts for the glory not of your name, but for the glory of the name of Jesus. Not only receive these gifts, but display the fruit of the Spirit of God here and outside of here as you love the Samaritan around you. Who are the Samaritans around you? As you joyfully share the warmth of the protection of the gospel with those who feel cold and unprotected. As you live in peace with one another. As you patiently wait for the Spirit to move, not on your clock, but on his, as you kindly serve each other, as you give good gifts to one another, as you faithfully lean upon the Lord's power to do what you cannot do, as you gently correct your brother or your sister, as you demonstrate the self-control that acts upon his prompting, not your own impulse. The Spirit's fire is the gift of God given for you and for the world. May this city, this state, this nation, this world get brighter as the Holy Spirit spreads his flame of a king 
and a kingdom which never ends through the church until our King comes again. Amen.